We live in a time of tremendous opportunity for innovators, entrepreneurs, and those with skill and imagination. But it seems at every turn, there are forces that slow us down or get us off track. I believe you can trigger your independence and lead a flourishing life, be free to choose, and live according to your own values. Join us in a conversation about big ideas in life, liberty, and the pursuit of your happiness. Welcome to the John Riley Project. Hey, how you doing? And we're here for another episode of the John Riley Project. Welcome. Thanks for joining us here today. We've got a great show in store for you. We're going to be talking today about the supply chain problems. And I know it's in the news quite a bit, but I've got some interesting takes on this. And we're going to kind of break down what's going on with the supply chain, with inflation. And and uh, we're going to really get into that. Um, and, you know, trucking is a big part of this. So, you know, my family actually has history in the trucking industry. I want to share with you a number of stories um, that I've experienced in the trucker world. Um, I think this can lend a little insight into some of the challenges that exist in the in the world of trucking. Um, I've got a local news update that we're going to get into here, some topics in my hometown of Poway and a few in San Diego. And if time is available and I've got the energy to get to it, um, I'm going to give you some business tips and we're going to talk a little bit about search engine optimization and a new tool that I'm using that I'm really fired up about. And I'll share a number of SEO tips on how to get your site to rank very high in Google search results. So that's what we're doing today. Well, I've got a lot. Supply chain, trucking, local news, SEO, all in another episode here on the John Riley Project. We welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream. That means you're invited to participate in the conversation. Just type them in on both Facebook or YouTube. I'll see them here on my screen. I'll read them on the air. And even though you may not be here in the studio with me, it'll be just like you're here with me. And we're going to have some fun with it. So how you doing, everybody? Hope you're all doing well. You know, we're doing this now kind of like on Wednesdays at 2. That's my plan. Mike Ryan in the live stream chiming in with the roar. Mike, good to see you. You know, and we've Mike and I have talked so many times, uh, particularly about some of the worker challenges in the, um, in the grocery industry. We're going to kind of get into some of that as well because it's all related to supply chain issues. But, Mike, good to see you. Thanks for joining us on the live stream. Um, but, you know, anyways, I'm doing the podcast now primarily once a week. I was doing it three times a week, once a week, Wednesdays at two. That's kind of the plan. And I may deviate in the future. You know, I my own prerogative. It's my project. I can do what I want with it. Uh, but I thank you for joining me here at two o'clock. And Mike, always good to see you, too, as well. Okay, so let's get into this supply chain mess. And, uh, you know, it's all in the news right now. And, you know, there, there are distortions up and down the supply chain. There, there are ships that are off sea, you know, off the ports of, of Long Beach and LA, uh, that are backed up. I mean, even some people thought maybe they had something to do with the oil spill in Huntington Beach, but there's, there's a lot of problems with the shipping. Then there's problems getting them unloaded. There's problems trucking them. There's workers shortages. There's just all kinds of distortion all over the place. And 
a lot of this all goes back to government policies. And that's what we're going to see that common thread as it goes through this. But are you experiencing product shortages? I'm kind of curious what you've been seeing in the market. Um, you know, Mike, you're, you're in the grocery industry. I bet you could probably tell us of certain product shortages, products that can't be had uh, because supply is limited. I know for me, um, I told you I drive an electric vehicle. I have a Hyundai Kona. And I, I lease it through my business, and my lease is actually going to expire in, in April of next year. And I'm really worried because I don't know what's going to be available. Um, I know there's the, the microchip problem that's causing uh, you know challenges with automobile inventory. I'm really worried about that. Um, so I know it's, I'm going to have to make a big auto decision here in, I don't know, what, four or five months. Hopefully, some of this is going to relax by then. But even yesterday, you know, in my particular business. I own a marketing agency and I work with a lot of different suppliers. And one of my suppliers was telling me they're having all kinds of problems. This is a, a paper supplier. And they were having trouble not only getting access to sheets of paper that they run on commercial printing presses, which a lot of that is imported from Asia. But then in other cases, the pulp is um, that what they use for the paper mills here in the United States, that pulp has been um, back backlogged, essentially. A lot of that also coming in on, on ships, uh, causing a lot of challenges with which it's just interesting. I mean, in every industry, there seems to be bottlenecks of supply chain. Uh, Mike Ryan says, luckily, luckily, it hasn't happened um, that much to us. You know, Mike works at Albertsons in the grocery industry. But I know we're seeing it in other parts of the economy. Um, there are places where you just can't order certain things. They're backlogged for months, maybe not until 2022 or some certain products going to be delivered. And then there are worker shortages on top of it, which make it hard for A, it causes complications for the products to be delivered. But also, once the products are actually arrive at where they're supposed to be, there aren't enough workers to build the products, to service the customers, and to essentially keep these businesses going. So it's just a disaster right now. And let's break this down because – What's interesting is, is is that a lot of this, as I said, it it's caused by policies that either are incentivizing demand, that are creating more people wanting to buy certain things, or by policies that are restricting supply or limiting the capabilities of the productive part of our economy to actually be productive. And so, you know, a lot of this starts with COVID. Of course, COVID was the genesis of this, but when we went through all of these shutdowns and mandates and stay-at-home orders, I mean, it caused a cascade of problems. And we may not recover from this until next year sometime. That's what Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said. You know, it's going to take a while for all of this to sort of settle down and work its way through. So, I mean, what are the policies? I made a list. What are some of the things that we've seen from either federal state or local government officials that are incentivizing demand. Well, certainly all this stimulus, right? We've had what I'll call helicopter money, money that was printed out of thin air and then just handed out, you know, to people, whether you were working or not working, it just you had to have income of below a certain level. And they just flooded the market with cash. I remember seeing a 
a documentary or not, it was a segment on 60 Minutes where one of the Federal Reserve um, – you know, not not the main uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve it was one of the vice presidents um, was saying how that was indeed the strategy. They they were not going to um, allow the the economy to contract. They were just going to flood the market with cash. But we all knew that that was going to create its own set of problems, its own set of unintended consequences. Uh, Mike Ryan on the live stream saying worker shortage is our biggest challenge. And it is. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So we're seeing helicopter money being passed out, not only in the form of stimulus checks, also in the form of those extended unemployment benefits that went to people. And sure, they were out of work. okay, but they were out of work because companies had to be shut down because the local and state officials shut them down. So then in order to make up for that, they had to pass out all this free money, which then is you got people sitting at home, not working, that are getting paid, in some cases paid more than what they were earning in their job, and they just want to spend the money. So that creates a lot of this additional demand, these kind of a um, – a artificial amount, uh, artificial level of demand. Then there's all the bailouts to the corporations. You know, that CARES Act that was passed in the second quarter of last year, we saw not only the stimulus checks to individuals, we saw the PPP loans that went to small businesses. We saw um, huge um, amounts of loans that'll probably be forgiven to large corporations. I know there was like 500 billion that went to large corporations. In fact, Donald Trump, when he was president, had a slush fund that he could pass out to corporations that needed the money. Um, so that also is kind of, you know, propping up the economy, creating a lot of essentially fake demand, if it were. You know, it's it's artificially created demand and it's and it has a rippling consequence through the economy. So then we also had the stay-at-home orders, right? Remember in the initial part of the of the COVID lockdowns, we were told we couldn't leave the house, you know, unless we were going to a specially special category of a business, whether it was a grocery store, a restaurant, a healthcare facility, you know, we otherwise we had stay-at-home orders. So people were you know, we're staying at home. And as a result, their demand shifted in other categories. You got people at home, in some cases, homeowners getting paid more than they were work uh, when they were working. They were staying at home. Maybe they were staying at home and working remotely. Well, suddenly they're looking around the house and saying, you know what? I don't like the way our kitchen looks. I want to remodel the kitchen. Or I'm looking in the backyard and I need to replace that fence. Or I want to you know, upgrade our patio cover. There were a ton of home improvement projects that happened starting in the second quarter that actually caused a lot of home improvement companies like Home Depot and Lowe's and and even here in San Diego County, places like Dixie Line Lumber saw their their revenue skyrocket in the second quarter of the year and in and through much of 2021. Because people had money to burn. They weren't going on vacation. They weren't, um, you know, taking trips. They, they were not pursuing, let's just say, services. They were instead buying goods. They were buying stuff. And that shifted um, the demand in the economy. And then we saw other cases where, like, for example, you know, we hear the story about in the automotive industry, there is a shortage of microchips for automobiles. And 
the crazy part of it is, is that when the shutdowns happened, you know, people weren't buying cars. They were nervous about the economy. They were un, unsure about the future and they were working from home. So there was less need for cars. And then car sales dropped as everyone expected them to. And so those microchip manufacturers, semiconductor manufacturers in Taiwan and other places in the Far East, they shifted their production schedules. And instead of creating microchips for cars, they began making microchips for webcams, like what I'm using here in the podcast. They were using, they were creating other forms of consumer electronics that were in demand because people were working from home or were staying at home. Now, when we want to get the microchips to essentially get us back to building more cars, they're unavailable because of that shift in demand that was ultimately triggered from the shutdowns and stay-at-home orders that were issued by state and local government officials. And here in California, Gavin Newsom, you know, and we can we can make a list of people, Republican and Democrat, that, that really caused a lot of this to happen. Um, and then a lot of these loans, quote-unquote loans, are given out, but there's really no intent for that money to ever be paid back. So like a PPP loan, you know, and a PPP loan, you apply, you get forgiven and and then you don't have to pay it back. I got a PPP loan for my company. I qualified for it. I mean, if they're handing out money, you sure as hell me. I'm going to try to get what I can, um, especially given how much we pay in taxes. I'm going to take advantage of those opportunities. But that if you filled out an application, it wasn't hard. You got the money. And then a year later, you fill out another application and you get forgiven. Um, but then there's also other cases. And this is a little bit outside the box of, of the COVID situations and our supply chain. But it's the same point. It's like with college loans. You know, they're giving out college loans like, you know, willy nilly in many cases where these people are not going to be paying these loans off for a very, very long time. They're giving out loans to people that really, in many cases, won't have the means to pay them off in the future. You know, we, we talked about the, the housing crisis of 2008, where people were given loans that had no ability really to pay them back. In some cases, that's happening with college loans. And then what are we seeing in college? We're seeing a huge surge in the number of students that go to school. I just saw a report just this week in my alma mater, UC San Diego in La Jolla, 43,000 students now. And they say they're going to get up to 50,000 very quickly. That'll make them the biggest campus in the whole University of California system. I mean, hell, when I was there, I remember my graduating in 1987, our student population was 13,500. And when I was a freshman, you know, prior to that, I'm sure it was under 10,000. Um, it's insane how much these universities are growing and the expense to go to college keeps going up largely because they're flooding the market with cash, in this case, college loans. And then it creates excessive demand, which drives up prices. So we see it in college. We're also seeing it now really through the supply chain. And then on top of it, you know, we can take another example the housing crisis, right? Housing is, we're going through a pandemic. People are not working, but yet the price of housing continues to go up at a accelerated rate. 
Um, and why? Well, it's again because of policies that in- influence or encourage demand, like excessively low interest rates. We're seeing that too. But it's not just on the, the demand side where we're seeing excessive demand being created, all kinds of artificial reductions in supply, right? And so what happens if you have increased demand and reductions in supply, you know, you're going to have less availability of product. And then on top of it, you're going to have more money chasing less and less product, which means that prices are going to go up and we're going to experience inflation. It's exactly what's happening because of these policies. I mean, like how is government, you know, essentially reducing supply? Well, they've been shutting down businesses left and right, shutting them down um, and limiting business capabilities. I mean, restaurants were allowed to open and they had to close. And then it was, oh, you can do takeout only or wait a minute. Now you can do outdoors. Oh, no, can't do outdoors anymore. Oh, now we can do outdoors again. They're constantly getting jacked around. I saw um, an article just just last night that In-N-Out Burger in San Francisco just got rung up by the uh, Department of Health in the city. And they've apparently passed a rule in the city of San Francisco that you have to have a vaccine um, passport, a vaccine card to get into a sit-down restaurant. And um, In-N-Out Burger, which is, I I think it's near Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, they weren't checking for vaccine uh, passports. Um, And so what did the Department of Health do? Shut them down. (laughs) So uh, we're seeing so many cases like that where government is restricting supply. Then you got people with this worker shortage. You got people taking early retirement. They're saying, F this. I've had enough of it. I don't want to deal with any more of this chaos. You have people retiring early. Then to take it a step further, you have all these other people that are going through career changes, right? They're saying, I don't want to work in that restaurant. I don't want to be a bartender until two in the morning. And they quit those terrible jobs and they go to work at a corporation that maybe offers benefits and, and other, um, you know, other uh, amenities, perhaps at a higher wage. And they're pursuing other career opportunities, which, by the way, is a great outcome of the the pandemic, one of the silver linings of the pandemic. But again, that disruption never would have occurred if it wasn't for the fact that businesses were being shut down. But at least, you know, people are redirecting themselves, which is good. That's that's kind of the good news. But the end result is, is that in certain segments of the of the economy, there's a huge worker shortage. Now, on top of this, now think about this. We got a huge worker shortage in the United States, right? Meanwhile, what was the big story in the news like two or three weeks ago? Remember all those Haitian immigrants that were like on the other side of the Rio Grande River uh, in Mexico um, out near what was it? What was the name of the city out there? It was like in West Texas. And there were, I don't know, hundreds, thousands. It was some large number of Haitian refugees that wanted to come to America. A lot of them got sent away. I mean, heck, Vice President Kamala Harris went down to Guatemala and Mexico and said, do not come. We don't want you here. We're, so we're turning away immigrants when we need them to fill a lot of these entry-level jobs, jobs in uh, the hospitality industry, which is having some of the greatest impact from this worker shortage. To me, this is nuts. I mean, historically, most co- uh, countries, especially countries that have strong economies, they always need more immigrant need more workers, and immigrants provide that. I mean, heck. My family, when they came to America, 
they, they came and they worked in the copper mines. I mean, jobs that most Americans probably didn't want, but they were happy to take them and they were happy to come to America and start a life, something better for them and their family. And then each subsequent generation in the family has done better and, you know, awesome. But it's crazy that we're turning away these immigrants. I saw a news story. 1.7 million immigrants have been deported in the last 12 months. So it makes you wonder, I mean, is there really any significant difference in immigration policy between Trump and Biden? I mean, if we have a worker shortage, then why in the hell aren't we letting the workers come in? I mean, I'm sure a lot of those workers coming in were working in service-oriented jobs, restaurants, et cetera, um, where in countries where they came from. I mean, heck, we might even have immigrants that were truck drivers in other nations that could come here and fill truck driving jobs. And a lot of them certainly could be trained and companies are hungry to bring them on board and train them. So what's the problem? So again, we have a worker shortage, but a lot of it's because they're not bringing in any immigrants or, or to a, a, a proper degree. Then you got the tariffs, which have been going on since the Trump administration, Biden's continuing them. Tariffs, what, of course, what they are, of course, is a tax on imported goods. It's a disincentive, really, for imported goods to come to the United States. Tariffs, of course, ultimately paid by initially by the importer at, at the port. But then, you know, the, the burden of that taxation of that tariff is passed down through the supply chain and ultimately to the consumer. But that ultimately hurts imports as well and causes supply chain issues. It has an impact. Um, then we got other kinds of restrict. I mean, this kind of we get a little bit outside of the scope of COVID, but other things like the housing market. Right. You know, we always talked about the increased demand because of low interest rates. But then at the same time, there's there's limitations on building all these NIMBY laws and, and zoning regulations that make construction more difficult. So when you have increased demand and an, and a decrease in supply, that sends prices up and it and it reduces the inventory of available product. And you'll hear that every time from real estate agents that there's not enough housing, that the demand for housing is over the top. And it all comes down to these kinds of policies that drive it. And then regulations that thwart the distributor of the products. And, you know, that goes to a lot of the trucking. And I'm going to I'm going to share some trucking stories with you here in a moment. But we're hearing this challenge of there's just not enough truck drivers and we can unload these containers at Long Beach and the port of L.A. We can get them off of these container ships and use the cranes and we can maybe even get them on some of the rail. But then when it comes time to load them on trucks, I don't have enough truck drivers. And in some cases that, you know, it's, it's an undesirable job. In other cases, it's difficult to get a license to drive. In other cases, certain trucks are illegal to have in the state of California. So they create a lot of these bottlenecks that make it difficult to have enough truck drivers. Again, much of it, not all of it, but much of it from the government policies. Um, then think about rental cars. I was just talking with Pete Neal. He was our guest. He was um, out in in uh, Maui. Like we had a podcast episode with with him and Mike Smith. He, they were in Maui, and he rented an exotic um, uh, Corvette C8 while he was out there. It was cool. The, what was the name of the company? I think you remember you told me about them. They're uh, they were a company that basically are a car rental agency that's like Airbnb. 
where you're renting a car from a private party. And what a cool concept. Um, but a lot of times people go you know, on vacation, you can't get a car. And if you can get a car, you've got to pay through the nose. Like I've heard of cases where car rental rates are like three, four, 500 bucks a day, not for an exotic car, but like just for a four door sedan because there's not enough inventory. Well, why isn't there enough inventory? Because when the government shut down parts of the economy, had stay-at-home orders, people didn't travel. There was no business travel. There was no, um, you know, vacation travel. And so the auto agencies suddenly had all these cars and no one renting them. And they had to pay their bills. So what did they do? They sold the cars. Now, suddenly people are traveling again, and there's not enough inventory of cars. And then when you want to go buy more cars, you can't get them because they don't have enough microchips because, again, all these distortions coming from these policies. See, we didn't have to – it didn't have to be like this. You know, there, there's a pandemic. We can – obviously, that was a big issue. We can do business safely. If Home Depot is allowed to be open, if Home Depot is declared to be an essential business and people can conduct business safely there, they should have been able to conduct business safely elsewhere. Because the consequences of shutting everything down have created a whole other set of consequences that some might argue may be even worse. Um. You know, just a couple more things. I mean, um, regulations, I mean, even like in hospitals, for example, you know, when you when you're seeing these cases of, you know, people can't get ICU beds. Right. That's a big problem. It's a legit problem. You know, people on ventilators, ICU beds that many times have peaked, not just here in San Diego, but in other parts of the country, especially in red states. But did you know that in order to create a new hospital? An entrepreneur just can't say, hey, there's a lot of people that need hospital beds. I'm going to go build a hospital. You can't do that. You actually have to get permission, not only from the government, but the all the other hospitals have to acknowledge that there is a need. So you can't create more hospitals until your competitors acknowledge that they need another competitor in the marketplace. I mean, imagine that in any industry, having to get permission from your competition to enter. And then to make matters worse, you know, with the vaccine mandates, there are some people that are getting fired from their hospital job because they won't take the vaccine, which, by the way, is really strange. I mean, why would someone work in healthcare and not get the vaccine? That, to me, just doesn't compute. But those people do exist. Um, so what? So that creates an, like almost like a double whammy. You can't create more hospitals, and you have less staff. And and then we wonder why there are challenges in hospitals. Normally, in a in a free market, if there are more demand, then more supply is created to meet the demand. But in this case, there are all these restrictions that were put in place. So you look at all this, and I, I mean, I think to myself. Okay, some of this is temporary, right? I mean, at some point, those ships, you know, that are out off the coast of California, at some point, they're going to get into port in Long Beach or in L.A., which, by the way, isn't it weird? There's like those two ports there, and they're not that far away from each other. Um, 
is the L.A. port the one in San Pedro? Um, Pedro, I think it is. And then Long Beach is the one. I mean, it's like only a few miles away. But apparently 40 percent of all imported goods in the United States come through those two ports. Well, how many ships are hanging out waiting to come in? I think it's like 60 something last I heard. Well, at some point they're going to come in. At some point, this product will get delivered as the economy works its way through the bottleneck. Um, but how long is that going to take? You know, and when it eventually works its way through, prices will relax. I mean, it's kind of like lumber. Remember lumber prices went crazy? Well, they came back to earth. I don't know if they've come all the way back down to where they were before the pandemic, but they came down substantially. And then even other parts of the supply chain, like remember when we had that big run on toilet paper and there was not enough inventory? Well, eventually the, the, the production of toilet paper caught up. I think another way to say it is I think less people were hoarding and then more people were able to buy toilet paper. But eventually it catches up. So that's good news, but some of this may not ever catch up, like the housing crisis, because that's been a problem for a long time, and it keeps getting more and more expensive. So, um, you know, it, you see similar things with the supply chain mess, with the housing crisis, with the college crisis, the healthcare crisis. If you really break it down, you can see a lot of cases where demand is artificially grow, uh, enhanced and supply is artificially limited. And that's Econ 101, friends. When demand goes up and supply goes down, prices go up and we get shortages. And normally in a marketplace, new entrepreneurs will come forward to provide product and services to meet the demand and relax the market and get it back to an equilibrium. But we can't do that. Because either A, it's not allowed, or B, there's not enough workers to go around to do it because we're keeping immigrants on the other side of the fence, on the other side of the wall. And our vice president's going to Guatemala saying, do not come. So uh, it's just something. So um, I just want to share, I mean, it's just some things that were sort of burning, um, you know, in my mind for the last few days I wanted to share. If you got thoughts and comments, go to um, my one, my website. You can go to a URL I have called connectwithjohnny.com. Go to connectwithjohnny, get on my email list, and I'd be happy to share updates on different things we're doing here with the John Riley Project. Okay, um, I want to talk about trucking. And I have... I have a history. I have a family history, stories to tell. And trucking right now, of course, is a big problem, right? We talked about it. It's a big part of the supply chain problem. You can't get truck drivers. I mean, apparently there were there was a shortage of over 60,000 truck drivers before the pandemic. Now it's around a shortage of 80,000 truck drivers. So they can't move the goods, you know, across the United States. Um, and it's a huge problem, and it's a big reason why we have this supply chain breakdown. Well, my stepfather was a truck driver, and it's just it was kind of crazy. Some of the things that he, I witnessed and some of the things that we experienced as a family where my stepfather, you know, drove trucks. And um, at one point, you know, he was an owner. Well, he used to drive for a trucking company, but then – very soon thereafter, he was an owner-operator. So an owner-operator is like an independent business person that owns their own truck and then is paid 
you know, on jobs to take product from point A to point B. But an owner operator pays for the truck, pays for the fuel, pays for the insurance, pays for the maintenance, pays to change the tires when they need to be rotated or they, they need to be replaced. The owner operator is a small business person. Some might say is a gig worker, um, depending on how they structure their business. So my stepfather was that. Um, and the crazy thing is I was born in San Francisco and I was raised in a town called Burlingame, which is, you know, on the San Francisco Peninsula, about, I don't know, 15 miles south of the city. And we lived in a residential part of town and um, in a very small, modest house. And we, my stepfather used to park the big ass Peterbilt truck without the trailer like on the street in the residential neighborhood. And um, and then later on, after we had the Kenworth, then later on, the, the Kenworth ended up, the, the engine blew up and that was a whole catastrophe. And then eventually my stepfather got a Peterbilt truck, which once again was parked in the front of our house. This was in the mid to late 1970s. Um, and I go back, it's funny, I go back to my old stomping grounds and the street that I was raised on is already really narrow, much na more narrow than I ever remembered. Again, when you're a little kid, the street you lived on seemed like a really big street. But now you go back as an adult and you realize it's tiny. I mean, when there are cars parked on the sidewalk or not on the sidewalk, on the curb on both sides of the street, you can't fit two cars side by side. You can only go one car at a time one way. So imagine if there was a big ass semi truck in front of your house. You could barely squeeze through there. I'm surprised our neighbors didn't riot uh, from it. But at any rate, um, my stepfather was, you know, this is like in the 70s. And back then, owning a truck and truck driving was kind of glamorous in the 1970s. I don't know how old y'all are, but back then, you know, it was like, you know, CB radios were a big thing. I mean, this is like obviously really pre-internet. Um, this is 20 years before the internet existed, um, at least commercially. So CB radios were a big deal. And remember the movie Smokey and the Bandit was a big thing. And, um, you know, and Mike Ryan on the live stream, BJ and the Bear, it's another one. You know, truck drivers were kind of glamorized in the 1970s, you know, because um, they were these sort of manly men, these sort of tough guys out on the road, you know, um, working for a living. You know, it was and then, you know, the, the CB radio had its own jargon. Remember, there was a, a song called Convoy. Uh, who is who is the one that did it? C.W. McCall. I think there was the guy. He was like, breaker, breaker, rubber duck. We got a convoy. And, um, you know, and it had all the, I mean, it was like CB slang, right? All the handles in it. And that was popular. Uh, so it was something in the 70s. And my stepfather owned a truck. And, you know, for a lot of other people, yeah, Matthew Brannigan on the live stream. Yeah, Convoy, C.W. McCall, Convoy. Um, yeah, it was a hit everywhere. Yeah, you're right, Matthew. It was a huge hit. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. Is like today, it's hard to find truck drivers. But back then, they were on television. They were movie stars. They were celebrities, at least, you know, some of the performers that, that talked about truck drivers were. And, you know, most people might have been working in a job they didn't like. And it seemed like this truck driver guy was like the man on the open road living free. You know, it kind of had a glamorous feel back then. And so, you know, 
my stepfather, I know, took a lot of pride in being a truck driver. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of liken it to um, that uh, Bon Jovi song, Dead or Alive. You know, it's on a steel horse I ride. I mean, when I hear that line, I know Bon Jovi's talking about his tour bus in that song. But to me, I always think of my stepfather because the pride that he had as a truck driver, um, it was a big deal to be a, you know, to own a truck like that. And he, he took huge pride in it. Um, Pete kneeled on the live stream on my cross country trip. I was surprised at the number of trainees that were in the various motels I stayed at all across the country. Yeah. Right now there's a, there's a, a driver shortage. And I mean, how many times have you been driving down the freeway and you see on the back of the trailer, it says drivers wanted, you know, here's a phone number and apply. They want to get them into these schools because you have to be trained because you got to go from, I think it's a class, is it a class C or a class three license? And you got to move up to a class two or a class B. I can't remember if it's numbers or letters, but you have to get trained and you have to then go to the DMV and take a test, uh, which makes sense. Um, but, you know, going to truck driving school isn't cheap. Um, hopefully a lot of these trucking companies are paying to train these employees. I would imagine they are now. But you'll see those signs on the trailers or the back of the trucks. And what's interesting is, is that they don't pay you by the hour. They pay you by the mile. And in some cases, that kind of makes sense. But in other cases, you know, does it incentivize truck drivers for driving too much and being tired and being at risk on the road? Does driving by the mile like really suck when your truck breaks down or you're in horrible traffic? You know, it's pluses and minuses to the whole thing. Um, but yeah, there's a big truck driving shortage. So when I was a kid, um, you know, both my parents worked. And actually, my mother worked for a trucking company, but she worked in the office. She was an accounting clerk um, handling their accounts. Was it? I think it was the accounts payables that she did. So she worked in the office and, um, you know, worked for a trucking company. And, you know, San Francisco back then, kind of on the eastern part of San Francisco, there were a lot of still there were ports along those piers that some some uh, you see some ships would unload there. But by this time in the 70s, most of them were unloading in Oakland. But still a lot of trucking companies were there, especially along um Third Street, you know, and kind of that area. In fact, right around that whole area where the Giants baseball park, you know, Oracle Park is, a lot of trucking used to be in that area. Now it's all gone. Now it's upgraded with, you know, high rises and office buildings and medical facilities. In fact, I remember one time I was up there um, on in San Francisco at the intersection of Third Street and Mariposa, which is where my mom's office used to be. That was a gritty truck yard, you know, with a warehouse and a place where trucks would back in. And it was just kind of, you know, yeah, it was gritty. Now it's a medical facility that was sparkling clean and crystal clear white and clear windows. It was like, I don't know, it was like a time warp. It was like, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. It was something special. Well, what what was interesting for me as a child is that when I was young, when I was really little, you know, um, I would go to school and then on, and, um, during summer I'd stay at home. You know, my grandmother would live with us and then I got a little older and, you know, I kind of work with some local daycare. But then I got to an age of around 
I don't know, nine years old, 10 years old, something like that, where I would just go to work with my dad. And I would go in the, in the truck with my stepfather and we would deliver stuff, you know, and he would have a schedule and we'd have to go here and pick up a trailer and take it there. And, and we would drive all over Northern California. And it was all during the day. We were always back at night. We were always back in time for dinner with some rare exceptions. Um, but I was like this nine or 10 year old kid in a truck in a huge semi truck. And of course, back then, no seat belts. I mean, it was kind of nuts. But I remember like doing that and I just being freaking bored out of my mind. But one of my highlights always was is whenever the Giants baseball game was on. And this is really where a lot of my love of baseball came from. I would get the San Francisco Giants schedule and it would tell me the time of the games and then depending on where we were in Northern California, there would be a different radio affiliate. Like if we were in Fresno, we'd have to tune into a different AM station. Or if we were in Yuba City or Santa Rosa, we'd have to tune into a different AM radio station. So that was always my thing. You know, I'd have to figure out the time of the game, figure out what radio station, get organized. Um, but then a lot of my other time, I'd just be sitting there doing word seek puzzles or different things like that. Um, and I would also study maps. I would always want to know where we're going and how we're getting there. And I became very, very familiar with the freeway system and where everything was as a nine and 10 year old. Um, and to this day, I still kind of have a, a love of maps if you come into my house, you'll see I have a lot of we, we have a lot of maps kind of as artwork. Um, and a lot of that for me was from following those maps as a child. Pete Neal on live stream chiming in. Also, some trip takeaway. Interstate truckers are far more watchful and courteous than ever before. And my quote unquote buddy, the UPS driver, watched out for me for two days. Yeah, there is definitely a brotherhood of truckers. And there is definitely a kind of a whole set of um, what's the right word uh, of etiquette for truck drivers. And, yeah, they will take care of other drivers, especially in cars that are on long trips. Because I remember with my stepfather, we would notice that I'm like, oh, we saw that guy, you know, 30 miles ago. Now he's back again. And, you know, we would pay attention to the people around us. But even when truck drivers, they, again, they have their own sort of etiquette, like they will flash their lights in certain ways. Like if one truck is on a freeway and they pass another truck, you know, it's kind of hard when you're looking in the rearview mirror to figure out, you know, did I pass the other truck all the way? I got a big ass 40 foot trailer behind me. Did I get far enough to then move back over into the slow lane? Well, the truck that is being passed will often blink their headlights to let the guy know in lane two that he can now move over into lane one. But then it's interesting is that a lot of times after that happens, the truck in front will then flash his brake lights without hitting the brake. There's like a little switch where the brake lights can kind of flash. And it's sort of like saying, you know, hey, thank you, brother. You know, so there's like a there's a definitely an etiquette when they're on the road, which is kind of neat. Um, but uh I, I just also, I remember, like, have you ever been on the San Mateo Hayward Bridge in the Bay Area? And, you know, that's a bridge where the side rail of the bridge is just a very modest concrete barrier. It can't be more than, I don't know, three or four feet tall. 
you know, it's not like being on the Bay Bridge where you got these giant pillars or or struts that kind of keep it, you know, you know, kind of kind of keep it in. And then like on the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, there's a two large um, sidewalks on either side and then the railings that go up. But when you're on that San Mateo Hayward Bridge, there's not much there. And I remember my stepfather would drive in the slow lane and I would look over my shoulder and right here, I mean, there's no railing. All you see is water. And it felt like, I'm a nine-year-old kid, it felt like we were like on the edge of the bridge, like anything could happen and we would fall into the into the bay. Um, so just weird things. And to this day, when I'm on that bridge, I always think of that. Um, but, you know, we would drive around and then I'd help my father, you know, or maybe he would pretend that I was helping him. I don't know. But to kind of figure out directions and then, you know, then they'd have to unload the truck. And then other times we'd, if we had a flatbed, we'd have to tie it down. And actually, I learned to do certain trucker knots that I sometimes will use now, especially back in the day when I had a pickup truck. Um, so I learned a couple of things like that. And this was all between the ages of like yeah, nine and maybe 12. Because by the time I was 12 or 13, I was old enough where I could stay at home as a latchkey kid. While my parents were out, both of them were working, I could come home from school and just stay at home. You know, I was old enough to do that. But when I was like nine or 10, it just wasn't appropriate. So that's why I would go on the road like this. Um, But what's interesting for me, and this is the part I want to share, and this goes back to why it's so damn hard to find truck drivers. So the big thing you hear is that you know, truck drivers a lot of times need to drive very long distances, like multiple day trips. Maybe they're going from Long Beach and they got to go all the way across the United States. You know, so it's a multi-day, multi-night trip. They're away from home for a long period of time. Well, that was always a source of conflict in our household because my mother wanted a husband that was home every night. And you can't blame her. My stepfather, you know, it was like, I told you, it's like this sort of heroic job, you know, to be this truck driver in the 70s. And he would, um, he wants to be driving, you know, that's how kind of built his self-esteem to be a driver of a truck, to be out on the road, to be a manly man. And a lot of the opportunity for truck drivers, even back in the 70s, was for longer trips. And he would always have to turn them down because my mom didn't want him driving overnight. But then eventually, you know, the marketplace shifts and there's less opportunity for local drive. And then so he would have to drive from San Francisco to L.A. And that was an overnight trip, obviously, to go down and then come back. Um, but he And he would do that like there was a time where he would do that probably two to three days, two to three trips a week from San Francisco to L.A. and back. Um, and, yeah, uh, my, my mom hated that. I mean, she just really hated it because he was on the road. And she wants, she married a, my stepfather. They, they, she, she got married and she wanted her husband at home. And I can't blame him. I can't blame her at all for that. But it makes it hard. Um, and it, you know, put a lot of stress on her family. Now, on top of it is that, you know, remember I said there's two kinds of truck drivers. Now, granted, I'll, I'll separate this. You know, there's within truck driving, there are the, the, the dirt trucks, which are hauling demolition and other kinds of, yeah, they're hauling dirt, which is a whole separate kind of truck. Usually you'll see a lot of Mack trucks that are doing that. But then the trucks that haul freight are, are often, what, what are the, you know, Kenworth and Peterbilt. I remember the two brands that were big. Um, but within the freight community, 
there were two categories of truck drivers. There were those that, that drove a company truck, and there were those that were owner-operators. And it was a very different job and a very different business model because if you, if you drove a company truck, well, you know, it's like a job. You, you show up for work, you punch in, you get in the company truck, you take care of business, you drive the truck back to the yard, you punch out, you go home, right? Well, an owner-operator owns the truck. So those semi-trucks are not cheap, I don't even know what a new one must cost nowadays, but it's got to be six figures, right? It's got to be over a hundred grand, probably over 200 grand for a brand new one, maybe even more. I have no idea. I haven't shopped for a truck, but it's like having another mortgage on your house. So it's a huge financial liability. And then you've got guys, and this is true in my family's case, you've got guys that are these sort of blue collar, tough guy um, truck drivers that are suddenly business people that are suddenly entrepreneurs that have to do their finances and have to manage a budget. I mean, it's one thing to manage a family budget, but to manage a business budget, that's, that's a whole other thing. And a lot of people don't have those skills um, and can't plan properly. And so that becomes a big issue. In fact, for my family, yeah, there were a lot of times they were struggling heavily on this. Because, you know, back in the 70s, the whole market went sideways with trucking, right? That was when we suddenly had huge inflation, which distorted the market. And then we had massive, you know, gasoline and diesel shortages, which then shot the price of fuel up in the roof. And then when people, like my, in my family's case, taking out a, a second mortgage on the house to use as collateral to buy a loan and to get a loan to buy the truck – and then back then, people were taking out variable rate interest loans, and then suddenly that second mortgage is now at 18%. And then, and then you don't have enough work to get around, and it's all because you're an owner-operator, and you have to take on the financial burden of managing that part of the business. And then if the truck you know, gets breaks down or needs maintenance, needs repair, you've got to do it. You've got to pay for it because you're an owner-operator. And so while there's a lot of pride in owning your own truck, there's also massive risk, massive downsizing or massive downsize to it. And that's why a lot of trucking companies that at least had a business savvy owner, they would hold the trucking license. They would get the jobs like they would have salespeople or account relationships. They would get the jobs. They would get, you know, they would figure out the logistics, like what, when, what time we need to pick up, where we have to drop off. They'd figure out all the logistics and they would dispatch the jobs. But they were able to, these savvy business people, were then able to outsource the actual trucking to a third party, to a gig worker, really, who had very little business skills to manage their own independent business while taking on a massive risk of they own the truck, got huge truck payments. They got to pay for fuel when fuel prices are skyrocketing. They probably took out a loan to get that truck when interest rates are skyrocketing. They've got to manage their, their finances. They've got to be able to figure out all their variable costs and fixed costs and make sure that they are getting paid enough by these trucking companies who sometimes those trucking companies would take advantage of the naivete of those drivers who didn't really understand what they should be charging. 
So they, in my case, my family got into a lot of financial trouble as a result of this. And so they got squeezed. And then you become dependent on this one entity to give you work. You know, unless you're out there hustling, finding other opportunities, it's just easier to depend on your one sole supplier of, op- of driving opportunities. So in today's market, if there's a, sh- you got, you got truck drivers that A, have to take on all of this burden, all of this financial risk, and then on top of it, really have a screwed up family life, or maybe don't have a family at all because they're driving constantly. Um, not my stepfather's brother was driving trucks up until about, I don't know, four or five years ago when he finally retired. And he was driving trucks into his seventies and he would drive all over the United States. And he had family in Northern California. I don't know how in the hell he did it. Um, but it's, it's not a glamour. It's, it, it's, it was glamorous in the seventies, but it's not glamorous now. And that's why there's a, such a huge shortage. Um, and it's no wonder they're having trouble finding drivers. And so this is why I always think that bringing in immigrants is so darn important. Now, I'm not saying every immigrant should be a truck driver, but some of them definitely could be truck drivers. Some of them were probably truck drivers in their previous country. But on top of it, as more immigrants move into the workforce, there are people that may be in jobs that are very undesirable, that the immigrant takes those, and then they can move into a truck driving career. And that can have sort of a domino cascading effect through the market. And there's a lot of other things that I think are important here. I mean, you know, and by the way, remember we heard from Andrew Yang in the 2020 presidential race where he talked a lot about the notion of um, automated truck drivers. Which, by the way, sounds really cool, right? I'm a big fan of um, this whole idea of automated vehicles, driverless vehicles. I think, I think that's going to be a big solution for transit in urban and suburban areas, especially here in San Diego as we grow even more um, for a lot of reasons. But they've often talked about how for truckers, the automated driving may be you know, one of the first categories of business where we see this occur. Um, But maybe not for the last mile. Maybe the last mile they have to have a human in there. But it sounds kind of weird. I mean, Pete Neal's been on these cross-country trips um, on the interstate. Imagine a semi-truck with a 40-foot trailer going by with no one driving. Um, Or with three 20-foot trailers, you know, and no one in the cab. Now, I know with my EV... And I don't know if any of you have even newer internal combustion engine cars. Cars have such great sensors now that cars can tell, you know, when to slow down when another car is in front of them. They they get warnings when there's, you know, if they if they try to change lanes too soon. I mean, heck, in my Hyundai Kona, it's not fully self-driving like a Tesla, but I can be on the freeway and I could take my hands off the steering wheel. And the car will stay in the lane and turn on its own. It eventually gives me a warning uh, signal, like put your hands back on the steering wheel. But it's because the sensors can see the lines on the street and then can make adjustments. And once this technology gets improved, it's going to be safer 
than having humans driving because humans aren't going to be falling asleep on the road. In fact, that happened to one of our family friends. Um, He was a truck driver doing the same San Francisco to L.A. route that my stepfather did. And he fell asleep driving on Highway 5 in the middle of central California, went off the side of the road and was killed instantly. Sad story. And that's why you see like some truck drivers popping pills. Remember back then in the 70s, they were taking, I think they called them Bennies or Reds. I think Major League Baseball players were probably taking it too. It's probably a form of speed is my guess. Um, to keep them awake. Um, which when we go to automated uh, vehicles, a lot of that risk, a lot of that uncertainty, a lot of that irrationality goes away. And it sounds scary, that notion of automated driverless semi-trucks. But to me, I, I read a report, I think it's not going to be until around 2030 until we'll start to really see that. But the crazy part is, is that the more we hear about automated truck driving, the more it discourages people to get a career in trucking. But meanwhile, we've got nine, 10 years until that technology, you know, according to the crystal ball people, that it's going to be available. Then what? So it's something. Um, I, I think it's, it's a great, I think it's, that's going to be a great technology, a great opportunity. But in the meantime, what are these trucking companies going to do? I mean, they have to find a way to make the job more appealing. Now, back before when a lot of the other jobs sucked, you know, for some, that was an opportunity for an improvement. But in many ways, they're going to have to pay more to attract truck drivers, especially for long distance truck drivers. But what's that going to end up doing? It's going to create financial pressure throughout the market. It's going to likely result in higher prices for consumers most likely, but that's how it's all going. But I'll tell you what, um, it was difficult. And eventually by the time I think we got in around 1981 or so, uh, my stepfather was no longer a truck driver. Um, he was then working as working in carpentry, um, doing some construction work, then eventually went to work for a printing company which, by the way, drove their truck. <laughs> but it was the company's truck, not an owner-operator. Um, but it's it's a hard business. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And it's no wonder it's hard to find workers because it's so damn disruptive to your personal life. Okay. Um, that's trucking. All right. So I got two more topics I want to get into. We're at 57 minutes. I'm going to go a little longer today. Um, We're going to get into some local topics I want to talk about here in my hometown of Poway. And then I want to just touch on a little bit about search engine optimization, just a little bit at the very, very end, uh, because I'm learning some new things and I think I'd like to share some of that knowledge. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, I'd love to hear your comments and thoughts on this episode. Go to my uh, any of my social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, um, YouTube, of course. Um, go to my website, go to connectwithjohnny.com and all of my uh, social media platforms are there. In fact, all the audio only podcast platforms are there with one click. You can get right on a Spotify one click. You can get right on iTunes and then you can also sign up on the mailing list there. So go check that out. And by the way, if you're watching this episode now, if you think I deserve it, how about a thumbs up? Um, you know, that kind of helps with the algorithm. And, you know, the more people that like what we're doing, the more we show up in people's feeds and the better it is for everybody else. So, okay. 
local news topics. Um, and these are topics that I've commented on in the past. And they're here in Poway. Um, one of them is the outpost. One of them is Star Ridge Park. A little bit I want to talk about Poway water rates because that's a local story that I think is worthy of mentioning. But let's talk a little bit about the outpost for a minute. And I hinted at this last week. So the outpost is a building that they're building on Poway Road here in the city of Poway. And it was really the first building the first construction project for this vision of a transformed Poway Road in between community and carriage roads. And, you know, since then, they've gone on and built, they're building now or starting building on more projects in that stretch. And this, the vision for this building was like, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to have um, a workout facility. It's going to have a food court. We're going to have a local brewery in there. There's going to be uh, commercial facilities, and we're going to have some condos, some one, two, and even three bedroom condos in there. It's going to be this kind of idyllic, you know, residential, commercial, mixed use space. And it was in this area of Poway. Actually, it's right in between Five Guys, you know, Burger Joint, and the Poway Bernardo Mortuary is where this is. And it's a pretty decent sized lot. But, you know, to fit all this commercial traffic and to fit all this residential uh, parking, there's no way they had enough parking to make this work. So they had this idea that they were going to build an underground parking garage two stories down, and this would be the solution to this. And, you know, like to the average person, you look at that and you say, hey, that makes some sense. That's, that seems pretty innovative. We don't have underground parking here in Poway, as far as I know. Um, and what is, that's an interesting solution, but then I remember we did um, podcasts with a lot of other political candidates back in 2018, including our good friend Pete Neal, who I think is, is watching the live stream now. And he was a candidate in 2018. And he, he said, when they dig, they're going to hit water because it's right near the Poway Creek. And the water table there is kind of high. Am I saying that right? The water table is high. You know, if you don't have to dig very far deep until you hit water. And they, you know, a lot of other people said that in the community, people that had some knowledge of our geology and topography, some people that had knowledge of construction, kind of figured that might be a problem. But we all sort of assumed, you know, at least I did, that, of course, the people in charge would have researched that, right? <laughs> and, you know, they've got to get building permits. Of course, the city would have done their due diligence, too, to make sure it was a safe place to build. Well, what did they do? Remember, they started digging and digging. And it was like our own, like, remember in Boston, they had the big dig. This was like our own big dig. They built this huge hole, right? And they had to go down two stories. And sure enough, they hit water. And the water came in and they were pumping out the water. And at first it was like during the rainy season. And we figured, okay, it's like rainy season. But then over time, you know, it was spring and it was summer and they were still pumping water. And we're thinking, oh, shit, this is a problem. This is a big problem. And for a while there, they they couldn't build because they were so busy trying to solve this water problem. It was eroding the foundation or at least the dirt platform of where they were going to pour concrete. Imagine water running. I mean, it could create all kinds of sinkholes and other kinds of problems underneath the building. It could be catastrophic. It makes me think of the building that collapsed in, um, you know, just south of Miami a couple of months ago. Well, 
they kept struggling with the water. And then meanwhile, they started building and they poured concrete and they started going vertical. And then suddenly construction stopped at the outpost. And everyone's like, huh, that's interesting. They stopped. I wonder what happened. You know, maybe they're just waiting for a new permit. Maybe, you know, they're about to get another batch of funding, another, what do they call it, another tranche of funding. Well, it turned out that they were going bankrupt, <laughs> that they owed money to all these companies for the construction of this building, and they had very little revenue. And on top of it, this whole water crisis was delaying the project, adding more expenses. They were you know, up shit Creek without a paddle <laughs> right there along Poway Creek. And now it's been sitting idle. For I don't know how long Pete, you could tell me it's been like, I don't know, at least six months, maybe even a year. It's been just sitting there and the, you know, the plywood that's there going, when they started going vertical, it's just been baking in the sun all summer. And you're thinking, what are the hell are they going to do? And then, so this article came out in the paper that said, oh, wait, there's another company that may take this project over and they want to make some changes to the plan, but they may very well be able to start construction and actually finish the project. Well, that set off a whole cascade of people chirping, you know, all these Mrs. Kravitzes from Bewitched <laughs> looking out their window, trying to look around here and to micromanage the whole city. Everyone had comments on this thing. And, you know, people that for construction, people that are against the construction, people that like the city council, people that don't like the city council, everyone seemed to have an opinion. And I'll tell you, man, it, Facebook was electric in some of these local community conversations. And so one of the people in our community who I talk about frequently on this podcast, her name is Chris Cruz. And, and she is a local, so I would say community activist, community organizer. She does her due diligence. I'll tell you what, she digs and digs and she <laughs> kind of like the big dig there where they're building the outpost, but she does her work, her homework. She gets facts. She challenges our city council. A lot of times she's a thorn in, her, in their side. And then, you know, she has her own point of view. And sometimes I agree with her and sometimes I don't. And, you know, we have some interesting discussions. So but I have respect for the work that she does. Well, she just went and called City Hall. She talked to the people in planning and she kind of figured it out. She said that they're now ditching the whole gymnasium fitness workout place. Um, but they're still going to do the food hall. They're still going to have smaller commercial spaces in the outposts. Um, and they're going to convert that gym space to a bunch of more apartments. So now there's going to be 72 residential units in this facility. And what the developer is going to do is they're going to use what's called a density bonus and will make nine of the units affordable housing for low income, meaning that their median income is only 80% of the county. So as a, as a, uh, if you want to build more units, you have to, by law, make some of them available for low income. And so they're going to do that. But the, the site's still going to have 332 parking spaces, um, and the residential units still going to be two to four bedrooms, and the project needs to be reviewed by the city council, and it could change again. But they're going from something like 50 residential units, maybe 58, something like that. So I think it started with a five, and now there's going to be 72. Well, oh my God, everyone coming unglued. There's going to be more people living on Poway Road. That means there's going to be more traffic. We're going to have all these problems. And do we have the infrastructure? And oh, Jesus, it just keeps coming. Now, the good news is, is they're, they're 
building out a lot more of the water infrastructure in Poway. That's the plan. Um, that's good news. Uh, is an increase from like 58 units or whatever it is to 72 units going to be that big of a difference? Probably not. Those 14 units or however many extra units there are, they're not going to be out all on the road at the same time. Um, but it's going to be more people. And that's, you know, we got all these locals trying to micromanage this. So we're going to hear more on this. Now, Pete Neal on the live stream says 300 parking spaces and 30 docks next to the pier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 332 parking spaces. Um but they've got to still figure out this, wa this water problem. And, you know, this company that's taking over, it's, they're not like some large company with vast resources that can weather a financial storm. I mean, they may, it's very possible they'll start again and something else could go wrong and then we'll be screwed again. But right now it just sucks. Right now it doesn't look good. Right now it's this incomplete hole in the ground, side of the road, just looks bad. Got the the chain link fence and the green canvas around it. And for the longest time, the, the sidewalk was blocked. I think they recently opened it up. But I'm, I think this new plan sounds good to me. I mean, let's figure out a way to, to finish this damn thing and clean it up. Because I'm of the belief that once a lot of this construction on Poway Road is finished, I think the end result is going to be a lot better than what some of the pessimists think. Um, and I'm excited about this. The food court, I think if, if there's going to be a, uh, you know, a, the brewery is going to be there, that sounds pretty cool too. So we'll see. So, you know, to be updated in the near future, I'll share some thoughts with you. Um, but, you know, of course, there's more construction going on, on Poway Road and there's more going on here locally with the farm in Poway. And so we're going to be following all those stories as well. All right. Let's talk briefly, just a quick update on this. This is Star Ridge Park in Poway. Uh, we, you know, there's, there was a big study, by the way, in the city of San Diego that they had a lot of problems with their parks. Now, some of the parks in the city of San Diego were okay, but I think 28 of them were deemed to be unsafe, needed major improvements, needed to be upgraded, needed to be replaced, right? Parks are a big issue. A lot of people feel strongly about parks, Um this consultant in the city of San Diego, I can't remember what the dollar figure was, but it was a, a significant chunk of change that this consultant says the city of San Diego needs to pay to upgrade the parks. Well, here in Poway, we got our own park problems. And I talked a little bit about this on a previous podcast, but we've had some updates on Star Ridge Park. So for those of you who weren't listening before, a quick reset. We're upgrading the water infrastructure in Poway up by Lake Poway and up there by Lake Poway. And many, many people love Lake Poway, beautiful facility. A lot of out-of-towners come to Lake Poway because they park their car there and they hike up the hill to Potato Chip Rock. Well, anyways, at Lake Poway, where that water treatment facility is, they're going to be, you know, upgrading all of that infrastructure. And that means they're going to be bringing in a lot of pipes and a lot of stuff, Right. A lot of capital improvements, a lot of a lot of industrial material. And then they got to haul out the old industrial material. So they need space up there, like as a staging area, so they can move this stuff around. And it's going to take a couple of years. So what they ended up doing is they're taking over the softball field up there, which is a softball field with lights that is used by Poway Girls Softball League. For the 13 and 14 year old girls, it's also used as a practice facility for other ages 
in Poway Girls Softball. And oh, by the way, every year, the Poway High School plays against Rancho Bernardo High School in a big girls softball. It's the game at the lake. It's always a big highlight for the high school girls. So this is, you know, a field that gets a reasonable amount of use. And it's a field that a lot of people feel strongly about. And now suddenly it's gone. And so Poway Girls Softball talked to the city. The city said, you know what? There's this other park in Poway called Star Ridge Park. And they've got a ball field out there that pretty much no one ever uses. So how about we let you go out there and we'll fix up the field. You know, that field, by the way, is awful. We're going to drag the field, resurface the field. We're going to mow the grass. It's going to be in better condition. And then the girls can have a place to practice. And then, by the way, we're going to bring some lights out. And this field is sort of tucked away in a canyon where there really are no homes, you know, quote unquote, next door. They're kind of up the hill at the top. But we'll bring in these lights and the lights won't be really tall. They may be taller than the backstop. And the lights, we can direct it so we can kind of minimize the light pollution. And we'll set this up for the girls and they'll be able to have another practice facility for a couple of years while we're doing this water infrastructure thing. And I saw this, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, of uh, girls' sports and of boys' sports and sports a big part of our family life. And that field needed a lot of help. I thought, hey, this is a good idea. But oh, my God, the people in that community did not like this at all. Apparently, they had an agreement with the city council from way back in 1987. Now, I don't know how in the heck this works, but I don't know how a neighborhood could somehow have their own exclusive agreement about a park with the city council. Because aren't parks really kind of public parks, like for the public, for everybody? (laughs) But they wanted to maintain that park a certain way. They wanted to keep it so there was no organized sports there. They wanted it to be a shady tree and a bench to read a book and a place for the children to play on the playground and maybe having a pickup soccer game on the grass or a little bit of Frisbee, ultimate Frisbee but this sort of loose, casual kind of thing. And when they found out that organized sports were moving to Star Ridge Park, oh my God, people got upset and they're bringing lights. And then there were all kinds of misunderstandings. People thought they were going to be having games there. Then they thought they were going to be, it's just practice. And then they thought people are going to be parking on the street and everyone's freaking out and people jumping to conclusions. And it was nuts. Now, a lot of that's starting to sort out, but guess what happened? About a week or week and a half ago, they brought the lights. The lights are there and they got to have a generator run them and already people are angry. And that's the big update. The lights were installed. So I don't know what's going to happen as a result of this. Um, Are there other fields that could potentially be used in Poway? Maybe, you know, I've heard some conversation about the Poway community baseball fields. They could potentially scrape off the mound and put a portable mound in there. So both boys baseball and girls softball could use those fields. That's possible, but I don't know what the availability is. Usually fields with lights at high demand. I don't know if they have space available. They might. So we'll see. I mean, I know a lot of locals here in Poway were thinking, oh, there must be some other field they can go to, you know, ultimately not in my backyard. Um, so curious to see how this sorts out, but it, to me, this is a fascinating story because on one hand, I get it. The local neighbors kind of want to keep the park the way they want the park because in their neighborhood and they want to have some sense of control. I get it. 
But on the other hand, it's a public park, right? And the park isn't just for the neighborhood. And by the way, this is people from Poway. This is the Poway Girls Softball League that's going to be using it. And they're just using it for practice. It's not that big of a deal. And the lights are only going to be on for a few hours a night. And they're probably not going to be lit seven nights a week. Um, we'll see. We'll have more updates on this story. But I, to me, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Okay, one last story on the local news topic here, at least in my hometown of Poway. The water rates. That's another big thing that's going on right now. Now, water prices throughout California are going up in price. There's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I just saw another notice from that Governor Gavin Newsom wants to have further restrictions on water usage throughout the state. Even here in Southern California, where we're already doing good things. Did you know, by the way, San Diego County actually, relative to the rest of California, is in good shape with water. We built that you know big dam over at uh, San Vicente not too long ago. I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. That can hold a lot more water now. Got the desalinization plant in Carlsbad. That's great. The pure water project that's going to convert wastewater into drinkable water. Toilet to tap, right? But the tap water will be cleaner and better than the water that comes out of this Colorado River, which, by the way, who knows what's been in that water. So right now, there's a lot of water that's water infrastructure, a lot of innovation in San Diego County. I'm very proud of the work that a lot of people have done here as it pertains to water. But, you know, the state, you know, having problems in other parts of the state, and we hear all the problems in Central Valley. They're pumping water out of the ground, and we're seeing the ground kind of sink. Um we're seeing a lot of commercial farmers, almond farmers that use a ton of water, but they're asking now people locally to cut back. Well, as they cut back on water, we end up having less volume of water used. So what does that do? Well, that means the water bills are lower, right? Right? Well, they have all these fixed costs. They have all these people that work in the water department. They got to have their salaries paid. And they got all this, these other needs. All those fixed costs don't go away. Or maybe better said, the local government doesn't want to cut those fixed costs. So what they have to do is increase the rate. So while everyone's supposed to pull together and, you know, do your fair share to conserve, and then you go ahead and look at your water bill, and it's going up. Like, what the hell? <laughs> this doesn't compute. Um, so here in Poway, we're... Because we had that water crisis back in, when was it, 2019? I think it was. Um, we had the water crisis. We had the so-called rope water where the rope got into one of the drains. And then we had storm water got in with the drinking water. And then some people were you know, filling up their bathtub and it was brown water because of all the storm water. And then we had to have the boil water ordinance. And how long did that last? Like three weeks or so? And the mayor was out there handing out bottles of water. The city council handing out bottles of water. And we all kind of foregone, uh, forewent, what's the word? We, we didn't use tap water for cooking or for drinking. We must have used it to wash our clothes, right? I can't remember back then. We must have used it to wash our clothes. But um, at any rate, uh, that, that water infrastructure, because we had the big problem, you know, that, you know, inspectors came and looked at it and said, ah, 
you need to upgrade this. So the city is actually now going through this process of installing all this additional infrastructure, and then they're going to pass that on to consumers in their bill for these increased rates. Now, there's a lot of people in our town that are not happy about this, right? Of course, when water rates go up, there's going to be people that aren't happy. And so there is a a drive right now led by who I spoke of earlier, Chris Cruz. She's trying to get uh, Powegians, and there's a rule that if you get 50% plus one of the households to protest the water rate increase, then they have to withdraw the water rate increase. So if a majority of the homes say no, then the, the citizens could actually veto this thing. And there's a lot of cases that are being made why this should be done. Well, I mean, one of them, I think the one that's classic, the one that I hear frequently, although I've yet to verify, is that because the city government is a different, technically a different unit, a different agency than the water district, even though they're managed by the same council, there's different business units, but the city is limited on how much they can increase revenue because their revenue is primarily from property taxes, which have limitations on increasing the rate due to Prop 13, and on sales taxes, which are also limited, unless you go to the vote of the people locally to increase it. Otherwise, you're hoping that the state increases it. That is assuming that you're a state age, a city agency and you want more revenue. And for the longest time, Poway got more revenue by building more stuff, the business park and expanding more housing in Poway. But they've run out of dirt, not much left in Poway to build on. Um, so what they're ended up doing now is they're converting old lots, blowing out the buildings and building new things like the outposts. So I used, I just spoke of, which I think it used to be the location of the Poway news chieftain. They used to have the newspaper printing press there. And there, there used to be like an old, like um, irrigation store that sold sprinkler heads and things back there. But um, Poway, you know, gets most of its revenue. I think it's like 80% of its revenue from sales tax and property tax. And they have very little control over that. And they know that there's, there's very little growth available. So what is a city to do? Well, if, if you are quote unquote creative, you might be able to raise funds in other categories that can be used to help fund the city. And that's been the accusation um, by, by Chris Cruz and others that the city was raising water rates as an alternative to raising taxes to pay for the other portions of the city. Now, is that actually happening? I don't know. I haven't verified it. It might be happening. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if it's happening. Um, but at any rate, that's one of the justifications for this. And there's a whole slew of other reasons. But it is interesting that um, there is objection to paying for the infrastructure when all along here, especially lately in the last couple of years, so much talk nationally about infrastructure, about how we need more water systems and sewage systems and freeways and bridges and airports and ports where ships can come in and unload. We need more infrastructure. And now we're putting infrastructure in Empower and people are angry. Then the people are saying, well, wait a minute, you know, with infrastructure, you got to pay your fair share. We need more tax dollars going to infrastructure in the United States of America. But now in Poway, they're asking the water, pay, water users to pay for infrastructure improvement. And we still have people that are objecting to that. 
which, by the way, typically land on the left side of the political spectrum, who typically are the ones that are for more infrastructure to a greater degree than our friends on the right. So now there's no way in hell they're going to be able to get this blocked. It would require, I think using very ballpark figures here, there are about 13,000 households in the city of Poway. You need half of them to object. So that means you need like 6,500 people or households to submit these forms saying, I object to the water rate increase. And if they get 50% plus one, then they won't be able to do it. Last I heard, I mean, they had like only a couple of hundred that were submitted. Um, so, you know, more power to you. You know, if you think you can change this, I don't see it happening, especially since it's not like a regular election, you know, where there's all this publicity around an election and there's election energy and signs and everything. This is sort of like a little secret sort of most people don't know about it kind of thing where you can protest this. And I guess it's Prop 218 that allows this to happen. It's interesting. The mechanics of this are interesting, um, but it's probably not going to happen. So I think they have until November 2nd to uh, to get in, to actually block it, to get, that's the date to get all the uh, petitions in. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Let me know in the live stream if you're still watching. Interested in your thoughts. Um, and then what else locally? I just, I'll just th- say this. I'm really fired up, man. Um, you know, San Diego State football six and zero, or is it seven and zero now? I think it's six and zero. Nationally ranked, they got a big game Saturday against the Air Force. That's awesome. Um, San Diego State basketball is about to start in a few weeks. I'm really fired up for that. UCSD Division One basketball, I'm really fired up for that too. That's my alma mater. So I'm just really excited about local sports. And um, you know, they just uh, announced that. Lucas Johnson is going to be the starting quarterback for San Diego State. He went to Mount Carmel High School in Rancho Peñasquitos. So he'll be leading the charge on Saturday. They're playing in elevation at Air Force. So that'll be interesting. But I'm excited about that. Um, I should do uh, a podcast story about the new sports arena and that new development they're going to be building down there. Because one of my clients is down there and I go there somewhat frequently. And, uh, that's a, just a really crazy area. Um, a lot of a lot of homelessness, a lot of um, trash, a lot of uncared for buildings, a lot of uncared for infrastructure. Um, just it's it's an area that needs to be redeveloped. And they're talking about housing. They're talking about um, now affordable housing as part of this plan. They're talking about an upgraded or brand new sports arena, which, by the way, may not be big enough for an NBA or an NHL team. They're talking about a soccer field for the um, San Diego Loyal, which is kind of cool. Uh, we'll see. I, I, but I want to get into this because there's a new proposal that is now coming forward. Because remember, the old proposal, they, they supposedly had it approved by the voters, and then they found out that it was violating some law about leased property and how it could be sold and and how many affordable housing units had to go in as a result. Um, we'll do a future podcast and break that down and then really look at what's coming. But I'm excited about that. I, I'm hopeful that that's going to actually happen. All right. How are we doing out there, folks? We're at an hour and 26 minutes. Okay. 
if you've been with me for this long, I mean, love you, friends. Uh, tip of the hat to you. <laughs> um, but I told you in the very beginning, I want to talk just very briefly about SEO, search engine optimization. And I, I'd like to talk about some of this stuff because the podcast, you know, I love talking about local issues, local topics, but I want there to be content here that's helpful for uh, business people, help you improve your life, improve your business. And I'm going to bring some of my knowledge, some of my skill set, some of my discoveries to you. And, you know, I may even split this off and make this a separate segment to share on YouTube. A couple more live streams here. Pete Neal says, I find it interesting that they are trying to open up the opportunities for low income housing into an area where the water rates increase at the same percentage for everyone, um, including those on fixed income. Yeah, that's the argument, right, Pete? When it comes to water rate increases, should it be a fixed price that everyone pays because everyone uses the infrastructure and then a variable rate ab ab above that? Or should that fixed rate be really small or even arguably zero and everyone pays a variable rate based on usage? And there's arguments to be made in both directions. But it is interesting, you're right, that it's expensive to live in California. It's expensive to live in Poway. It's expensive to live in San Diego. So on one hand, while they're trying to control expenses with low-income housing, which, by the way, I don't know if that's really going to solve our housing crisis, I'm of the belief that we need a hell of a lot more supply. Just like I explained with the supply chain chaos. We have a limit of supply and an increase in demand and therefore prices go up. We need way more supply to make that housing crisis work, to solve it. But if we are, in this case, water rates getting more expensive, yeah, it's going to be tougher. It's going to be tougher for low-income people. But it's not just water rates that are going up. Everything's going up. But now they're going to raise Social Security up to, what, 5.9% COLA increase. That'll help a little. Pete Neal says San Diego made it into the list of the top 150 cities in the United States to retire in. They are ranked 138th. you got to be crazy. You've got to be a person of significant means to retire in San Diego. Housing is so unaffordable here. Um now, granted, the climate's great. Access to healthcare is great. Um, there's a lot of entertainment and culture and things to do, but cost of living here is just through the roof. Um, I'm surprised They're, that 138th out of one. Well, maybe that says something. 138th out of 150. Um, but if you can retire in San Diego County, tip a hat to you. Um, that means you got some money saved and good for you if you can pull that off. Okay. I want to talk about SEO and I just want to talk about this has been a big thing that I've been really focusing on and I'm really excited about it because, um, you know, I'm in my fifties, right? I'm 57 years old, right? No, I'm 56. <laughs> I don't know how old I am. I'm 56. And I love the fact that, you know, especially with this podcast, I've learned how to set up a podcast and do it and get the, the camera and the microphone and learn how to stream it. And I, I kind of figured it out. I'm really excited about that. But I'm really focusing on doing a lot more additional learning, continuing my education. And so right now I'm just 
really been focused on search engine optimization. And what I mean by that is, is that it's the going in and sort of tuning up your website so that you can rank high in Google search results. So you can make it easy for people to find you. And it's really hard to do unless you have the right tools to do it. And so I've been really digging deep with this one new tool that I'm really excited about. And it's called Ahrefs or Ahrefs, excuse me. And um, this I'm really excited about it because it's going to give me the technology, the research capabilities to not only make my websites rank higher in Google search results. I think it's going to make this podcast better because by doing all of my due diligence in researching what people are searching for, ultimately researching what's in high demand, I can provide content to meet that demand. That's going to result in, I believe, higher rankings for my website and a lot more viewers and a lot more listeners of this podcast. And I think especially if we can find ways to find content that's sort of consistent with a lot of the things we talk about. So I'm excited about this. And so this, this product is called Ahrefs. And if you go out there, you may have heard of them. They're one of the top SEO tools that are in the market. Um, and there's a lot of them that are out there, though. And it can be overwhelming. But I'll tell you what, I made the dive on this. It's a $7 for a seven-day trial. After that, it's 99 bucks a month. But it's totally worth it. And it gives you like all these keyword research tools, um, ways to identify how to do bank backlinking, ways to, to um, you know, sort of uh, study your competitors and what they're doing, um, all kinds of technical um, dashboards and ways to audit your website and to measure your website and to see how you're doing. But I want to say this because I'm not going to go deep in this. I just, this is going to be very short. The key point to this whole thing is that if you, it doesn't matter if you have like a, a website for your business. Maybe you've got an e-commerce site and you're selling product. Maybe you have a professional services co- uh, website where you talk about your services and you use your website to generate leads. So they come on your website and they fill out a form and express interest. Or maybe you have a website that's all about your Corvette Calypso, like Pete Neal has, and you want more people to see it. This is the strategy. And it's this. It's to Create blog content, create blog content, write your own articles as a way, as a technique to rank high in search engines based on high traffic keywords. So ultimately, you want to drive people to the site by providing content that is of of huge interest. And once they come to your site, traffic increases, more people sign up on your email list, more people are buying your product, more people are consuming your content, more leads are created as a result. So the super duper short technique, and I'm gonna, this is the lightning short version of how to get your website to rank really high in Google. Number one is to do use these keyword research tools to figure out and to study the blog topics that have high traffic and to find out which keywords are most competitive or least competitive to strategically decide the topics to write about and to do more research to find out subtopics that are really granular and then to write helpful content around them. Like, for example, buyer's guides, top 10 lists product reviews, how-to articles. Write those kinds of articles that help other people, but write them based on keywords 
that you've done your due diligence, your study that are high traffic keywords that maybe your competitors are not focusing on. This Ahrefs technology provides that research capability to do that due diligence. And once you've got those very helpful blog articles online, well, then you can optimize those articles to include links to internally to other pages on your website, use links to external websites. You can uh, make the content very skimmable, easy to read, fifth grade language. So people consume it and they enjoy it and they're not blown away by excessive jargon. It's something that they easily can consume. And it's really a copywriting exercise when you get right down to it, not unlike whether you're doing copywriting in direct marketing, whether you're doing copywriting for any form of advertising, it's the same thing. But instead of trying to sell your product, what you're really doing is trying to help people. And if you have content on your website that really helps other people and helps them in categories where they have need, in categories where there's high, um, there's high traffic, around that specific need, you're going to drive more people to your website. Now, this technology also helps you find out what other companies have websites and blogs that you can then approach to have them link back to you. They call these backlinks. And so the Ahrefs technology helps you identify the best sites to solicit, to ask them, can you include a link about my blog on your website and provide a valuable reason why they should. In some cases, offering specific websites, you know, offering to write blog articles for them, guest blog articles for them, which by the way, are going to have links back to your site. There's a whole kind of sub culture of this sort of thing where bloggers are contacting other bloggers, trying to help them by using their content to enhance other bloggers' content. And as a result, to get backlinks on those blogs that point back to their website. Because when you have more of those backlinks, when more people are linking back to your company website, Google likes that. And Google will say, hey, this is a good website. There's a lot of people that are linking to it. We're going to rank it higher. So when we search for Corvettes, like Pete's uh, a website for Calypso. If more people in the Corvette community are linking back to Pete, then that's going to give Pete's Corvette website a lot more credibility. And as a result, he's going to start ranking higher in the Google search results. And so this, 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 this technology, and I'm just really starting to get into it. It's just really great. And I'm going to share more content about this in the future as I go through my own discoveries, but it's a very, very powerful tool. And they not only provide all of the, the data mining and, 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 and analytics capabilities to do this research, but a ton of great training on how to actually make it all work in a real life example. Um, so it, this, this is a particular uh, product called Ahrefs um, that is used throughout the digital marketing space. One of the most popular SEO research tools I'm just really excited about it. And we talked, we did a podcast previously talking about Screaming Frog, uh, which is another SEO tool. That one more of a technical SEO tool. You know, you have broken, you have broken links or menus that aren't really working properly. Do you have redirects that aren't working properly? That does the technical analysis. 
Ahrefs does more of what they'll say on-page SEO, uh, really helping you optimize content. And then there becomes almost a both a science and an art to writing these blog articles so that they are very attractive, not only for people searching for that content, but their articles are written and structured in a way that Google really likes. And when you do that, you give your website a great shot to move up and become a better site. So it's all about content creation. So again, I'm really excited about this. I've got a number of websites for my business that I'm going to be using this for to try to optimize my results. Um, And then at the same time, I think this is going to be very helpful for me doing research on what kind of uh, topics to cover in this podcast. Now, by the way, I, I'll leave this to you. If you're listening or watching, you can always reach out to me. Uh, go to johnreillyproject.com and go to co- my contact page there and um, drop me a note. If there's a topic you want me to research or you want me to do a podcast episode on, let me know. I'd be very interested in that because I want to provide content that's valuable to you. But in the meantime, I'm going to be able to do my own work and I'm going to have some really great research tools and I'm going to find out how many people are actually searching on specific topics. And I'm going to find those topics that I think um, are aligned with this podcast. And as a result, we'll be able to provide a lot more value to people, a lot more value to listeners and viewers to help improve your personal and business lives. Okay. um, Pete Neal says, what if you are already running unopposed as the largest car not-for-profit website? Well, guess what, Pete? Number one, good for you. Uh, but number two, hey, man, why not figure out a way to monetize your site? Seriously, if you have a site that is getting the most traffic for a single car webpage, well, you know what? You can um, find ways, I think, to make a little money doing that. Why not? Um you know, right now, why stop at just being the number one nonprofit car website? Why not being the number one for-profit car website? Okay. Uh, this is the John Riley Project, episode 257. We've gone an hour and 40 minutes. Thank you, everybody, this for listening, for watching. Really appreciate you, my, my listeners, my viewers. Appreciate the community that we're able to build here together. I'll be back at you next Wednesday at 2 o'clock, Wednesday the 27th. And maybe if I get my act together, I might have an episode in between now and then. And if I do, I'll let you know. Okay, friends, we'll see you later. Take care. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor. Subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.